This is a particularly exquisite pleasure. Uh, welcome everyone to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, um, it feels like we know everyone in the room, which is as it should be. Um, the, 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 the work we do here tries to open up clearings to um, embrace and make room for all of us who um, are engaged in the care of the sick, who are sick, who are well but know we're going to get sick, and we do it through the agency of telling about it. Um, I'm going to introduce Nellie Herman, who you know, I trust. Nellie Herman is a fiction writer. Uh, her first novel, The Cure for Grief, um, was, um, it was her thesis in her master's program in fine arts and was picked up by Scribner's. So she is our, um, she is now the Columbia University uh, Medical Center creative director and is in the middle of, is in the process of teaching all us doctors how to read. And she's going to introduce our speaker. Hi, everybody. The task of introducing Mary Gordon to you all today was a particularly daunting one for me. Not only because she is a woman that is difficult to summarize, but also because in the six or so years that I have known her, since I first met her as a disciple in a fiction workshop, she has come to mean so much to me. It is like being asked to introduce a family member. How does a person do such a thing? In talking about someone that you love, it is always difficult not to fall into generalized sweeps of words and platitudes. So in order to help myself out of this risk, I did what most of us do these days when we need help. I asked the internet. And I am grateful for this task, which made me see the striking qualities and achievements of my dear friend as if she were a stranger, and then to feel extra grateful that she was not a stranger at all. The broad strokes are these. Mary Gordon is a writer who so far has published 16 books. 10 books of fiction, two memoirs, and four books of nonfiction, biography, essays, and literary criticism. Among her many awards are Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Writers Award, multiple O. Henry Awards, and an Academy Award for Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She also won the Story Prize for the book of her collected stories, and in March of 2008 was named the official New York State author. She teaches English and creative writing at Barnard College, her alma mater, where she has been teaching for 23 years. Awards and achievements aside, Mary is, very simply, a woman to be listened to. It occurred to me while I was watching, watching numerous interviews with her online and thinking of her presence in my own life, that she is a kind of voice in the darkness, a voice that is always honest and always asking questions, often the ones others are afraid to ask never turning away from what is most difficult, even if it means turning a sharp gaze onto herself or those that she loves most. In a review of her novel, Pearl, in which a mother is brought to the limits of her own faith by her daughter's continuing hunger strike, <clears throat> the late critic John Leonard described Mary thus, endlessly inquisitive, utterly fearless, she may also be the least ingratiating novelist at serious work in America today. Like a hound of heaven, she is too busy going down a rabbit hole or up in holy smoke to care whether we adore her or root for her characters. <clears throat> 
This quote seems to me particularly apt for Mary and her fiction, though I know her well enough to know that she does, in fact, care whether we like her work, and thank goodness for that. Her books themselves very much don't care. This is what I admire most about her fiction, and it continues to be the case time after time, for you barely need to even wait a year before Mary has another book ready to go. Her work is brave in more ways than subject matter. Structurally, literarily, narratively, she takes risks in her prose, using the forms of language however the story she is telling demands that she does. Mary is a writer that challenges her readers, not only to think about hard concepts, but to think about the very ways that stories are told. At least in her most recent book, she lays bare her own constructing of the narrative, just about coming through the curtain to show the strings at work, and it is through this co-constructing that her books show off their power. I really could speak about Mary all day. She's one of the most generous, most reflective, most engaged, and most inspiring people I know. Her work ethic would put most of us to shame, as would her intellectual curiosity and her heed to the call of others. Her work is always firmly rooted in the body, just as she explores concepts of the mind. She understands very deeply, as she has put it, the mixed lot of being human, and she is not afraid to talk about it. She is someone that, though she has no medical training that I know of, I would unequivocally call a healer. She's also very much a woman of faith, and she embraces the word in all of its complexity and contradiction. Speaking a few years ago on a Penn World Voices panel on faith and reason, she said the following, a quote that I think particularly is particularly important to this audience and this place. Without faith, we would be paralyzed. We believe that all men are created equal, that our mothers or at least our dogs love us, that the number four bus will eventually come. All of these represent a belief in the unseen. The question is not then, are we people of faith, which we as a species seem to be, but rather, what then is the nature of that faith and what actions does it lead to? And on the same subject, in an interview with Bill Moyer, she said the following, a quote which I will leave you with, reluctantly, because I would love to go on and on. But here's a quote that seems to sum her up, her and her work up, at the same time that I think it nicely summarizes a lot of what we are all here to examine. She says, I think one of the most dangerous linguistic or epistemic phenomena in the world is the either or, because we are hybrid creatures. We have bodies and souls. We have appetites and duties. We have many, many things that contradict. We're spirit and flesh. And so it seems to me the work of the writer is always, to use a religious term, incarnational. How do we witness to the mix of being human? How do we witness to the inherent contradiction of being human? I believe that if a writer can do her or his work, it is to try to imagine the other and not the comfortable other. So without further ado, let us please listen to Mary Gordon. really very familial for me because Nellie knows me really frighteningly well. Nellie was my assistant for a couple of years. Not only has my dog eaten her lunch a lot of times, um, she knows what my prescriptions are. <laughs> yeah, she, oh, yeah, we had have, we have the opportunities of every season changing my clothes and I would wave to my sandals, which I had missed all winter. Um, many, many things. And, and when I think of, of Rita, all I can think about is Rita was my 
in addition to being my dear friend anteriorly, she was my daughter's physician. And I think of the time that my daughter uh, got appendicitis on Christmas <laughs> and Rita dealt with it. <laughs> and uh, it, it's because of that that my daughter claims that she married her husband because I was on the phone screaming, give Rita, get them to give her drugs. They're not giving her drugs. She's in pain. And Anna said, I had to marry Mike because I didn't want you to be the person that they called when I was in the emergency room. Uh, so, so Rita's actually quite responsible for Anna's marriage, too. She was even there at the wedding. So. Um, and my babies were born here, so uh, it's, a, it's a pretty uh, emotional place for me to be. Now, this is called narrative medicine, so I thought I'd do something med about medicine and something about narrative. One is pretty sad, and one is a little bit funny. So um, I'll start with the sad thing. Um, this is from my book called Circling My Mother, which is, um, which is really about, uh, it's about my mother's life. My mother, who, who was a polio victim, she was afflicted with polio at the age of three, um, she was also an alcoholic, and she also um, suffered from Alzheimer's for at least 11 years, if not more. And, um, and one of the things that, one of the reasons, you know, I guess all narcissists convince themselves that they're not narcissists, but one of the things that um, I thought made it okay for me to write a memoir was to tell a kind of truth about um, having a parent or a loved one who has Alzheimer's, which is that it's not a made-for-TV movie where they all kind of fade into some rainbow background and smile. That, uh, that there's, there's a lot of, of pain and there's a lot of um, ugliness and there's a lot of rage and, uh, and that sometimes there's a lot of narcissism in thinking that you can care for the person best yourself. And, um, and again, that sort of hyper-individualism, which I feel Americans are afflicted with, so that, you know, every family has to, and it's always, or it's usually a woman, but not always, that everybody has to care for their own. And that's just not always the best thing for the person. Um, and so I wanted to really um, cast, as Yates would say, a cold eye on, um, on the, um, the whole phenomenon of, of, uh, of Alzheimer's and also of, of um, what it was to have a, a disabled mother because it's another thing you're not allowed to talk about that sometimes um, living with someone with a disability creates difficulties for you too and that's not on made-for-TV movies. Um, and I also wanted to talk about um, alcoholism, how, how these three afflictions of my mother's really, really came together. Um, I didn't intend to write a book about my mother, but um, as I was planning for her 90th birthday party, she lived to be 95, um, I was going to a show of Pierre Bernard's at, paintings at the Museum of Modern Art. And my mother was in a nursing home. She'd been there for many, many years. And I was talking, to, trying to get the social worker who I could never get on the phone. So I had to keep running out of 
the exhibit of Bonar to talk to the social worker to try to plan her 90th birthday party. And then I would go back and look at the Bonars and the juxtaposition of those two things was, was what made me um, write the first of the pieces that I wrote about my mother. Uh, and then just before my mother died, I was at another show of Bonars in Washington, so it seemed to make a sort of bookend. But anyway, this is, this is from um, something I wrote called Bonar and My Mother's 90th Birthday. In the year 1908, Pierre Bonar painted the bathroom and my mother was born. The posture of the young woman in the painting is that of someone enraptured by the miracle of light. The light is filtered through the lace curtains and its patterning is reflected in the water that fills the tub into which she is about to step. Even the floral spread on the divan from which she has just risen is an emblem of prosperity and joy. Bonar is famous for painting bathing women. In all her life, my mother has never taken a bath. At three, she was stricken with polio, and she never had the agility to get in or out of a bathtub. She told me that once, after I was born, my father tried to lift her into a bath, but it made them both too nervous, and they didn't do it. Ninety years after the painting of the bathroom, ten days before my mother's 90th birthday, I am looking at the works of Bonar and the Museum of Modern Art, a show I've been waiting for with the excitement of a teenager waiting for a rock concert. I was not brought to museums as a child. Going to museums wasn't, as my mother would have said, something that we went in for. It's very possible that my mother has never been inside a museum in her life. As a family, we were pious, talkative, and fond of stories and the law. Our preference was for the invisible. My mother has no idea that her 90th birthday is coming up. She has no notion of the time of day, the day of the week, the season of the year, the year of the century, no notion of the approaching millennium, and no idea any longer who I am. Her forgetting of me happened just a few months after I had been traveling for more than a month and hadn't been to see her. When I came back, she asked me if I was her niece. I said, no, I was her daughter. Does that mean I had you, she asked. I said, yes. Where was I when I had you, she asked me. I told her she was in a hospital in Far Rockaway, New York. So much has happened to me in my life, she said. You can't expect me to remember every little thing. <laughs> my mother has erased me from the book of the living. She is denying the significance of my birth. I do not take this personally. It is impossible for me to believe any longer that anything she says refers to me. As long as I remember this, I can still sometimes enjoy her company. The day before I go to the Bonar show, I visit my mother. It is not a good visit. It is one of her fearful days. I say I'll take her out to the roof garden for some air. She says, but what if I fall off? I bring her flowers, which I put in a vase near her bed. She says, but what if they steal them or yell at me for having them? She asks me 30 or more times if I know where I'm going as we wait for the elevator. When I say we'll go to the chapel in a little while, she asks if I think she'll get in trouble for going into the chapel outside the normal hours for mass and on a day that's not a Sunday or a holy day. 
She seems to believe me each time when I tell her that she won't fall off the roof, that no one will reprimand her or steal her flowers, that I know where I'm going, that she will not get in trouble for being in church and saying her prayers. I have brought her a piece of banana cake and some cut up watermelon. There are only three things to which my mother now responds, prayers, songs, and sweets. Usually I sing to her as we eat cake, and then I take her to the chapel where we say a decade of the rosary, but today she's too cast down to sing or pray or even eat. There is no question of going on to the roof. She just wants to go back to her room. She complains of being cold, though it's 95 degrees outside and the air conditioning is off. It is not a long visit. I bring her back to her floor after 20 minutes. On my mother's floor in the nursing home, many people in wheelchairs spend most of their days in the hall. There is a man who is still attractive, though his face is sullen and his eyes are dull. Well, of course I think, why wouldn't they be? He looks at me and his dull eyes focus on my breasts in a way that is still predatory, despite his immobility. I take this as a sign of life. It's another thing I don't take personally. In fact, I want to encourage this sign of life, so I walk down the hall in an obviously sexual way. Putana, he screams out behind me. I believe that I deserve this, even though what I did was an error, a misreading. It was still, I now understand, wrong. In front of the day room door sits a legless room. Her hair is shoulder length, I'm sorry. In front of the day room sits a legless woman. Her hair is shoulder length, dyed a reddish color. Her lips are painted red. The light blue and white nylon skirts of her dressing gown billow around her seat, and she looks like a doll sitting on a child's dresser or a child's crude drawing of a doll. My mother was once a beautiful woman, but all her teeth are gone now. Toothless, no woman can be considered beautiful. Whenever I arrive, she is sitting at the table in the common dining room, her head in her hands, rocking. Medication has eased her anxiety, but nothing moves her from her stupor except occasional moments of fear too deep for medication. This is a room that has no windows, that lets in no light, in which an overlarge TV is constantly blaring, sending images that no one looks at, where the floors are beige tiles, the walls cream-colored at the bottom, papered halfway up with a pattern of nearly invisible grayish leaves. Many of the residents sit staring, slack-jawed, open-mouthed. I find it impossible to imagine what they might be looking at. Um, so now we get to the narrative part. And um, one of the things about narrative is that it always involves selection. And whatever you select means that you have rejected something else. And if you are a fiction writer, and it's one of the reasons why it's hard for a fiction writer to be a decent person, because if you're a fiction writer, you have all this control. You know, if you have a character and you don't like them, you kill them. And it's great fun. Um, and I was just teaching Howard's End today, and there's a really awful character, Charles Wilcox, and Forster puts him in jail. And it's wonderful, it's good, put him in jail forever. And you get to do that if you're a fiction writer. In real life, you know there are many people I would like jailed 
on a daily basis, and I don't get to do it, and it's extremely frustrating. But in fiction, um, and in any kind of narrative, we're always choosing, and we're always controlling, and so we're always eliminating. Um, and anyway, I, I just wanted to read this because it, it's um, about, the, in a way, the conflict or the, uh, uh, the collision between art and life, or something like that. And it's called Ars Longa. And it's kind of true, but a little bit not. Here in this little town in Pennsylvania where I spend half the week and the whole long summer, we are urged to buy local. This is a pleasure, not a duty or a difficulty. The rewards are multiple, sticking it to the multinationals, high quality merchandise, real personal exchanges becoming known. The place in town where I am best known as a local fruit and vegetable, well, to call it a store, would be far too aggrandizing. It is, after all, only a wooden shack that looks like it might be blown over in a bad storm. It abuts a makeshift greenhouse on one side and on the other an old wagon where you choose your ears of August corn. It is owned and run by Rick and his mother. I would guess Rick is firmly embedded in his 50s, although I'm not sure at which end of the decade he resides. Approaching 60, I assume he's younger than I, but I find it difficult to fix a number to our age difference. He's always tan, but his face is free of wrinkles, and his hair is a golden blonde, but he has the gut and thick, bowed shoulders of a man no longer young, and when on warm days his shirt is unbuttoned, there is revealed an effulgence of chick thick chest hair, silver gray. His mother, Lorraine, reminds me of a particular kind of shaggy terrier hyper alert, exceedingly informed, nearly universally ill-pleased. Her wardrobe consists of an impressive array of brightly colored floral printed Bermuda shorts, complemented by equally brightly colored t-shirts, and several pairs of Technicolor Crocs, indigo, flamingo, lemon lime. It only now occurs to me, writing the words lamb and lime, that she dresses in response to her merchandise, that the colors aren't in fact indigo and flamingo, but blueberry, cherry, tomato, and cantaloupe. When Rick isn't around, Lorraine enjoys making vaguely sexual jokes, relying on the theme of fruit, with the occasional reference to a cucumber or banana. She is harder hearted than her son. Once when I dropped a cantaloupe, she said, you picked it, it's yours. Rick would never have made me pay for a damaged cantaloupe. She never, as he does, includes an extra ear of corn. The stand is open from Easter through Christmas. I asked Rick once what he did in the intervening months. Who knows, he snorted. I refrained from telling him that he probably did know, that he certainly knew what he had done in past years, and that the way he posed the question, who knows, was particularly inapposite, if not a radical definition of a rhetorical statement, because who would know if not he? I don't know why I had the impulse to press the point, suggesting that perhaps he and his mother traveled south to recover from the hyper-busy spring and summer months. Florida, I offered, Arizona. You gotta be kidding, he said. I'm barely keeping my head above water without turning into one of them snowbirds. Rick is a dab hand at picking a perfectly ripe melon. Just leave this baby on the counter and in two days, lunchtime if you want, or supper, but not breakfast, I guarantee it you'll be pleased. 
Once I was holding a honeydew up to my ear, shaking it for evidence of loose seeds, therefore ripeness. He grabbed the melon out of my hand with ill-concealed impatience. You're holding it wrong, he said. You've got to hold it the long way. Since to my eye a honeydew is round, I had no idea what he might mean by the long way. From now on, I'll let you do the picking for me. I'll leave it to you, I said. He seemed quite pleased. But if the impending ripeness of good fruit gave him moments of temporary hopefulness, this was by a long chalk the exception. Rick is not one of nature's optimists. The range of his dismay takes in a wide variety of categories from politics and the economy to the weather and the fate of the planet. Any of these can lead seamlessly to the rising cost of fruits and vegetables and their declining quality. Every succulent piece of fruit is an exception and no large conclusions can be drawn from it. The arrival of a snowy, snowy cauliflower elicits laments about the recent woody broccoli. Late in July, when the first tomatoes were arriving, he said, get them while you can. I hear there's a blight, a virus attacking all the tomatoes this year. In a couple of weeks, every tomato you cut into will show you nothing but a hard black stone. There was no point in telling him that the tomatoes in my own impressive garden were doing very well, better than they had in many years. He would have snorted derisively. Just you wait, is what he would have said. It was what he nearly always said upon hearing good news. The lives of domestic pets were for Rick a particular sign of an unloving universe. He had a real reason for this particular band of pessimism. He had a lovely dog, a shepherd mix, who always lay peacefully in the parking lot, greeting only those customers whom she could see wished to be greeted by her. One day the dog was struck with kidney failure and in a week she was dead. I asked Rick if he considered getting another dog. Nah, they just break your heart, he said. A friend of mine found a mother cat and a litter of kittens tried to get me to take one. I said no way, but I gave him some money to get the mother spayed. All I could see was hundreds of kittens starving to death. But if you'd taken one of the kittens, I said, you might have enjoyed having it. No way, he said, they just break your heart. In the same way that Rick could draw convincing, str strong connecting dots between politics, the economy, and the price of peaches, he was able to join his sad stories of the fates of animals onto a larger picture of human perfidy. The friend whom he gave the money in order to get the mother cat spayed took it and lost it at OTB. And just to show you, he said one day, when I was really low about losing my dog, my old girlfriend calls me out of the blue to tell me how sorry she is. I wasn't falling for that trap. I knew what she thought. She'd get me at a weak moment when I was vulnerable. Well, I've been around the block a few times too many to fall for that one, let me tell you. I'm just a little bit too smart for that kind of trick. I know that Rick likes me, or I think he likes me, and I believe he knows how much I like him, but his commentary on my life is not always complimentary. He asked me why I couldn't support myself by writing, why I needed to teach. Couldn't I write the kind of books that people, and I mean a lot of people, not just pointy heads, really want to read? He said that if I did that and I didn't have to teach, I wouldn't have to go back and forth to the city and I could spend all my time in the country. When I told him that I liked combining writing and teaching and that I liked splitting my time between the city and the country, he put an extra ear of corn in the bag and said, I guess it takes all kinds. Yeah. When I told him I had to go back to work after Labor Day, he said, hubby's staying around up here? 
Yes, I'll be back on the weekends. I guess you're the cash cow, he said. Well, Rick, I said like the good wife, I want him to believe I am. It's not quite like that. My husband's retired. He worked for 45 years. But I could see Rick wasn't listening. He had his own fish to fry. I could never lift off a woman. Some of my buddies can, but I can't. It's bad enough when women want to use me for sex. I, hey, say, I said, hey, I'm not a sex toy. I assumed he was kidding. I have to say, I never thought of you like that, Rick. The disappointment in his eyes made me feel like a felon. I vowed never to make that mistake again. I like Rick very much, and I want him to be happy. Today, when I pull into the parking lot, he springs out of the door like a jack-in-the-box. I was hoping you'd come in today, he says. I got something I really want you to see. He picks up what I understand is a framed poem. A lady comes here last week. She rented a house right on your road just for a week, just to write poetry, she said. I mentioned your name. She never heard of you. I guess you're not that famous. <laughs> not compared to really famous people, I say, like not compared to Angelina Jolie, I'll say, he said. <laughs> But then who is? Anyways, this girl, I guess really a lady, I said to her, what's the use of being a poet? You don't make any money till you're dead. Then your family gets it all. She says to me, I don't do it for money. I do it for love, just like you do. She'd come every day to buy stuff for her supper. I guess she really liked it here. She's gone now. Her week's up. But before she went, she gave me this. I was really impressed. I took it right down to my friend Jake, who frames things. He did me a favor, framed it right there while I waited. It's heavy. I'll hold it while you read. I reach into my purse for my glasses and approach Rick in the framed text. It says, such beautiful produce displayed with love and pride. Tomatoes, yellow squash, green peppers. The minute I walked in, I knew I'd found a special place. The poem goes on for another 20 lines, praising Rick and his fruits and vegetables. All I can think of to say is, she's got really nice handwriting. <laughs> but I know that's not what Rick wants to hear. Rick is beaming. In all the time it's taken me to read the poem, he's grown younger by 20 years, 40 perhaps. He's a boy, not his mother's son. That's really nice, Rick, I say. You should be really proud. I guess she really appreciated, well, not me, but you know, what I do, what I stand for. I wanted to say to some of my ex-girlfriends, see, not everybody thinks I'm such a complete asshole. <laughs> of course, I've never met the poet laureate, Rick's mother says. As far as I'm concerned, she might be a mirage. Does a mirage write poetry, says Rick, returning to his chronological age, but with an adolescent's petulance? Does a mirage make something you can frame? All I'm saying is I never laid eyes on the lady, says his mother. There's a lot you never laid eyes on, Mom, more than I could even begin to tell you, says Rick. I feel the need for an intervention. Well, I think it's lovely, I say. It's very thoughtful. And she's a professional, Rick says. Rick carries my bags to the car. I open the hatchback. I'm always on my guard with those hatchback things, he said. I carried a lady's bags for her this one time. She was an old lady, mind you, but I'm putting them in the car and she's not paying attention. She presses the button on her key and the thing comes right down on my head. I was lucky I didn't get a concussion. I am a sadder but wiser man now, believe me. I'll be careful, I said. I would never want anything like that to happen to you. 
I know, he says, where are you off to now? I'm going to swim in the lake. Larks for Lake? Yes, I like it a lot. I tried it once. Came down with a terrible case of swimmer's ear. You go there every day? Mostly. Maybe you've seen the daughter of one of my exes. She takes her kids there every day. Megan, long brown hair, slightly overweight, well, let's be honest, more than slightly. Two little boys around five or six. I'm not sure, I say, but Rick won't give it up. You must have seen her. Long brown hair, a tattoo with some kind of Chinese writing on her leg, drives a red pickup. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, but I know I was a good thing for Megan. She says to me, Rick, if I ever have a good relationship with a guy, it's because of the way I saw you were so nice to my mother. The guy she's with is a real good guy. She's had some hard times and he's not working right now. This economy is murder, but they're trying. I think they'll make it. I can tell that it's important to Rick that I've seen her, so I lie. It's a fault of mine. If someone seems to want something very much, I feel I have to give it to him. If Rick wants me to have seen Megan that much, I'll pretend I have. I remember my last encounter with someone fitting Megan's description. I was getting out of the water when I heard a woman's voice shouting, you lay a hand on my fucking kid again, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> These words were spoken by an overweight woman with long brown hair, mother of two boys around five or six. She had some kind of tattoo. I don't know whether it was Chinese writing. I don't know what she drove. But then I often saw another overweight woman with long brown hair and a tattoo. She also had two little boys, and she was tender with both of them, encouraging the little one to put his face in the water, praising the older one's dog paddle, his frog kick. I can see that Rick wants me to provide details. It's up to me which details I will provide. This is, after all, my job. It's what I do. It's up to me which of the two women I choose to be Megan. They're a nice family, I say. She's really good with the kids. The older one really looks out for the little one. That's good, Rick says. I'm really glad for her. It's the one of the things in the world that makes me feel good. Happy with a job well done, a job I did as well or better than the poet, I take my place behind the wheel. Don't work too hard, he says. Remember, with what you do for a living, you won't be rich till you're dead. Nah. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm very happy to take questions, Rita, if you... Yes. Why is 
Um, so I have a daughter who's in medical school, so I have a lot of stake in all this. I think one of the things that, um, that is, is difficult now is the idea that I, I, I think for a lot of um, practitioners, death is seen as a failure. Like, you know, we didn't do quite the right thing. But what is the fantasy that if we had done the right thing, nobody would ever die? Um, and, um, and the notion that, um, that there is a perfect thing to do. And the reason why I'm, I'm in awe of doctors is how you live with these choices that sometimes are the, are the wrong choice. But I think um, we have such a fantasy that, that, that the norm is healthy and young. And anything that is not healthy and young is somehow a, a perversion or a distortion or a failure. Um, and there, there's the idea of making a good death, which seems to have gone out the window, uh, that all deaths are bad deaths in some ways. And, and I think that's one thing that literature can really do, is, is to remind us that, that we're mortal and that death can be meaningful um, and that there is no perfect solution. There is no pain-free choice that's difficult. Um, but, you know, I can speak about that with great distance because I don't do the emotionally crushing things that you do. So I'm kind of in awe of that. Yeah, I, I did it, and I'm not sure I did it very well. Um, and uh, I like to think I did I did the best that I could. I think I would do it. I think I would do it differently now. I think I would have asked for more help earlier. Um, and I think it was that, you know, she's your mother. It's your duty. Uh, don't abandon her. Nobody in my family had ever been sent to a nursing home. And my mother literally went kicking and screaming. I mean, I literally, she was screaming at me the night before um, I took her in. And, and I think if I had got more help earlier, I could have been better to her. And I don't think I was so great. Yeah. Okay, and, 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 and let me um, examine myself and say maybe I have to say that so I don't feel that I was narcissistic. But, but when I look back on it, and, and it's interesting in, in both sides of life, I see it with the care of children as well. 
that, uh, you know, the fantasy that every mother is best caring for her own children in one house, you know, as opposed to sharing it or making it more public and more communal. I think that, to me, is a kind of narcissism as well, masquerading as altruism. And I think the challenge is, and I don't know how you do this, but I think I, these are the terms, to look and see how is the person really doing? Not how am I doing, not you know what does God think of me, but how is the person prospering? Um, and I, I think I think that's that's really hard to do. But I want to open the conversation that we should be a society that shares these things. It would in fact be better for everybody instead of assuming that if we're not doing everything, I think women are particularly vulnerable to this, if we're not doing, if we're not caring for our loved ones, we are bad. Instead of saying, what is better for the afflicted person? I think it's a tough one, yeah. I think one of the inherent tensions is also that society, at least our society, a particularly American hyper-individualistic thing that, uh, that, that I think we're, we're afflicted with as a culture in everything. You know, nobody should ask for help. Nobody should give anybody any help. Uh, the whole notion of being interdependent is somehow shameful. There's so much shame and appropriate <coughs> attached to it. You know, uh, we seem so far away from it. When I was young, in the beginning of the women's movement in the 70s, we were all talking about daycare a lot. Yeah. It's not even in the conversation anymore. And I remember a few years ago, I, I tried to get involved with somebody wanting to uh, make a universal pre-K mandated. And you would think that we were saying, why don't we just, you know, blow up a building? It was considered so threatening, and, and and the conversation was just over. And I think it's again this particularly American thing that if you're not doing it yourself, you're weak, you're selfish, you're self-indulgent, and again, not looking at what's best for other people. Uh, yes. Um, I, 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 I absolutely take your point, and I don't mean to, to put a problem. I just mean the temptation to not look at the effect and, and to only talk about one's own duty. And then you get so much nachas for that, and you get so much opprobrium for 
going outside the home. Um, I guess that's that's what I'm what I'm trying to flip. Not that you're a bad person if you do it, but is there a part of people that would rather feel like they are heroic than actually look at what's happening to the person? This is not easy, and nobody's a villain. But I would just like to open up the conversation to say, you know, what is caring really about? Is it about feeling like you're a good person, or is it about good care for the other people? And when there are no choices, that is moot. I, I, I completely take your point. But I think unless we open the question and say that sometimes it is a good thing to share the care, even ethically, not, nothing's going to change. Not that, it, you know, we, we can't. Look at the fuss about health care. I mean, we're talking about it, it's, I don't know what the deal is with Americans. I just don't get them. Just, I was a full-time stay-at-home father before I started working for Rita, which was the worst job I've ever had, really, in a lot of years. No, my God. <laughs> and uh, the amazing thing to me is in the two years that I stayed home with him, not one person ever opened the door for me with a stroller. Yeah. No one ever gave your seat up to me in the subway. No one ever offered to help carry the mm -hmm. stroller up the mm -hmm. stairs in the subway. When he started standing, they would make us stand in the train and not give up their seat. And they would make light of, hey, his balance is pretty good. And it struck me that we were, it was invisible. No one was looking at him and what his needs were. Literally, people let doors slam in my yeah. face. That it, it became sort of a running joke with my life that each week, just week after week, no one ever showed any courtesy whatsoever. And I'm doing this really difficult job in New York City with a stroller and a baby. And so I think it's about looking. Nobody's looking because they're afraid to look. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's our consciousness. We're all so focused on ourselves. Uh, although New York is better than a lot of other places, believe me. I think in, in places where everybody's in a, in a minivan, and nobody sees anybody. I mean, at least, at least if you're in the subway, you have a chance of talking to somebody about your kid. But if you go from the minivan to, you know, your video, that that's that's really scary to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just going to try to relate this to this conversation to uh, the healthcare setting and thinking about some of the pressures that, that providers. Mm -hmm. But there, there's a strong historical current of wanting to do it by yourself and encouraging others to do it by themselves. And if you don't, you're somehow weak. 
Yeah, and the whole Marcus Welby fantasy, you know, that in the old days my doctor was on call for me and if I called him up at 3 o'clock in the morning, he was there and it was always him, some fantasy that there was this endlessly giving uh, physician who was always fabulous and now there are just these selfish pigs that want another Lexus. Um, I, I think that that, that, can be, that can be very destructive too because people sharing and... Uh, sharing the load has got to be, I mean, I'm not saying that there's nothing to the physician that's there all the time, but again, it's a fantasy. It's a kind of lone ranger. Um, and I think as more women go into medicine, that's going to change. Because I think it is a very, you should forgive my expression, male thing. Yes? So, so in, to whose benefit is it to keep this information not shared? That's a policy issue, and I, you know, the fact is, the information is there, and when you said you were looking to get some information about somebody, you Googled it. Well, it's a great source of information. No, Nellie Googles. I don't Google. <laughs> um, yeah, but... But I think it's interesting that you would ha one would have to work hard, whereas if it were a priority, um, it would it would be more available. I think somebody somehow some people don't want it. So, yeah. I, I got both. I got people saying, you know, how could she say that about her mother? How could she make her mother look so bad? Uh, she must be a horrible person. And then I got people saying, thank you, because you really articulated things I was feeling, and I felt like a horrible person, like I was the only person that ever thought that. So, so I, got bo I got both. Um, and my mother was dead when I wrote it. I, I would not have published this book when my mother was alive. Because uh, I don't think that you get to say whatever you want, no matter who it hurts. And I really, I really uh, knew that I wasn't hurting my mother because she was dead. Um, and I, I wouldn't, and I would not have done it if she were, um, if she had been hurt, could be hurt by it. So. Ellen, um, I'm, I'm interested to hear that. Chaplains and social workers, when it's like the 11th hour, mm -hmm. but rather to include them. 
also, it goes on and on and on and on for years. And um, as, as people live long, I mean, my mother's body was grotesquely healthy. You know, she was, in the, uh, people would, on her floor would be going to the hospital and, you know, and getting colds. My mother never got a cold. <laughs> she never had indigestion. She was, she was a horse. And, uh, you know, she, she lived to 95, almost 96. Never had an operation in her life. My mother was never hospitalized except when she broke her leg and had me as a cesarean. But she could have gone on, you know, I, I just thought she'll never die because this animal, the, the animal wants to survive. And, and her quality of life was terrible and it was terrible for 10 years. Just terrible. And so I think part of the problem too is that there's no end in sight ever. And, and, and that makes it harder. Yes. I, I have to be an oncology social worker here for a lot of years. And there are very, very, very few resources for anyone who's going through that was particularly hard for me is I didn't know, I mean, I, I made sure that she wasn't ill-treated or, or, you know, she was clean and fed and safe. But, you know, people would say, oh, sing to her or I remember I made an enormous uh, photograph album one time. Didn't matter. I mean, nothing mattered. And, uh, but, you know, I really tried. I mean, I would make tapes for her. I would, I would bring, I would bring things in. Uh, and at the end of the day, all she cared about was sweets. That was the only thing that she would respond to was sweets. And and so you know, uh, if you say what is out there, she was she was long past when anything would have mattered. Except I had to make sure that she was well cared for. Um, and, and one of the things that I found was I had young children when my mother was um, starting to become demented, and I could see the toll it was taking on them. And I had to make the decision. It will, it will really affect their lives badly, much more than being in care would affect hers. And that was a crushing decision to have to make. Yeah. At the same time, Mary, I don't know if I can say this, but I think it helps. I remember a phone call, kind of late-ish of an evening, when you called me to say, you got to come see my mother with me now. 
because she has bruises, and I yeah. think she's getting hurt by the staff. And Mary kind of hauled me over to Riverside Drive to, to, to the nursing home, and she was a bloody tigress. So, so th that's there too. Yeah. I, I was, I was, if I thought anybody was doing anything slightly less than ideal, I was ready to just break their bones. So, <laughs> so, so there you have it. But, you know, so it turned out, what Rita and I discovered was her skin was just so fragile that she would bruise herself, and she sat with her head in her hands all day long. She sat like this all day long, so she had bruises all over her face, but I was worried. And then, of course, you feel like a monster for barely being angry at this person who is in such a terrible situation. I think you can do both, trust me. <laughs> if you really work at it, you get, you get to double tip. pretend that you came from out of town and take me out to lunch. So I said, okay. And as I was, we were walking, I said, what's the name of that actress that was married to Ken Grana? I really loved her. She was in Howard Man. And I said, Emma Thompson. I said, if I get Alzheimer's like Nana, just put me in front of the bus. She said, okay. So then we're, we're having lunch. And I said, you know, I used to be really worried that there would be a fascist takeover of all your children. Mothers and daughters are having lunch, and I think the only one who mentioned assisted suicide twice before the sandwiches came. So yes, I'm always, I'm always planning, I'm always planning for my own dementia. Thirty years ago, I started an ethics committee in a nursing home and invited the entire